Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, April the 16th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. If you are interested in the whole idea of politics podcasts, as obviously I am, you're probably aware that the Urtext, the Gutenberg Bible of the forum, is the Slate Political Gabfest, launched by the American news site Slate way back in 2005 and still going strong today. And for that reason alone, it would be a pleasure to welcome one of the stalwarts of that show. But when that stalwart is also responsible for some of the most acute and entertaining analysis of the American presidency at a time when that particular job has possibly been under more scrutiny than ever before through his brilliant podcast series Whistlestop and his recent book The Hardest Job in the World. That's a double pleasure. And when all that good stuff is only what he does in his spare time when he's not doing his day job on one of the pillars of the American network news, 60 Minutes, well then I just have to add all that stuff up and say, John Dickerson, I am delighted to welcome you to the podcast. Hugh, thank you so much. I am uh, equally as delighted to be with you today. Can I ask you a sort of an inside baseball media question first? We had Maureen Dowd on our show just before the election. And one of the things she was talking about was how fantastic Trump had been for our business and how subscriptions for The New York Times and uh, Internet traffic and even TV ratings, even network TV ratings had benefited from the Trump the Trump effect. Uh, What I'm wondering is, and without giving any trade secrets or inside analytics away or anything like that, has what looks like a kind of a deceleration and a a lowering of the temperature over the last three months, has that had an impact in in newsrooms? It has. I mean, and and whether it's a good or a bad impact, Hugh, is, is, um, is something we could talk about all evening. I mean, I, I think, um, so, just from the most basic economic standpoint, fewer people are watching, um, and and therefore the the you know fewer viewers. Uh, you can't charge as much for advertising, um, and they're not. It's not just what what's happening in the moment that they're not watching, but of course they're not tuning in to learn about what might have happened while they took a few blinks away from the the twenty four hour news stream. Um, but that was terrible for democracy. It was terrible for our collective health. Um, a lot of people after the election was finally dis- determined, described a kind of feeling of, of this free space they had in their brains. Because um, for a lot of people, even some who were not Democrats, the constant um, freneticism of the Trump administration uh, was constantly in, in your head. And it's not good to have politics in your head that much unless it's your unless it's your business. And even if it's your business, it's not so great. So economically, it's a challenge to the news businesses for sure, because they were already going through a challenge. But um, psychologically, it might be quite good for America. I mean, I have to admit, as as an outside observer and fascinated observer of American politics over the last many years, really, there's something about the finer points of the filibuster and what cloture actually means and who the parliamentarian is, sounds a bit like the bad guy in a comic strip, um, that doesn't have the same adrenaline hit that we were (laughs) getting used to over the last few years. 
Well, it's quite true. And in fact, that's one of the dangers or one of the problems with those issues is that um, when we become a nation addicted to high energy uh, combat, then anything that doesn't achieve that level seems unimportant. And and we'll talk later about the about the presidency. But if if your government is is run and attention to the business of government is run based only on adrenaline, that's no way that's no way to behave because most of the decisions and we learned this during COVID, the decisions have to be made where emotion is stripped from the decision making process in a lot of ways, or at least where people are are reflecting a little bit and not acting purely on on reacting uh, by emotion. There, there is a critique, at least I've heard it, from conservative quarters in the United States, which is that one of the reasons why the temperature is lowered is because Joe Biden gets an easier ride than his predecessor and he doesn't get asked the hard questions and people aren't kind of picking him apart in the same way as they would have done with a Republican president. And I mean, I watch mainstream US media and obviously some of it is, you know, clearly to the to the right. Some of it is perhaps clearly to the left. A lot of it aspires at least to the, to the centre ground. But I do get a sense sometimes that that self-described mainstream media got forced into partisan positions or a kind of a partisan emotional position, perhaps partly by Trump, and that we still see the after effects of that. I think you're you're exactly right. Looking just at the Trump era, a couple of things happened. One, there was a lot more work that the press had to do to constantly keep the president and his administration to account for the things they said and did. There was just a lot more of that activity. Most previous presidents and administrations felt constrained by the traditions and norms. Uh, the word norms in America became, you know, constantly used because um, they, they, the president was no longer constrained by the normal rules. So if somebody's crossing the line a lot more, you're just going to have a lot more conversation about line crossing. Um, so that was one thing. The second thing is the president wisely, as many politicians before have tried, tried to turn uh, criticism into bias. And so he said, anybody who criticized me for any of this line crossing just has a, a problem with me because of their ideological perspective. So that he turned it into a battle. Now, what we should do in such a battle is basically ignore it. Uh, many of us did not. I tried and I think I came out okay. Um, but there were some opportunities for me to try to, you know, where basically he was baiting the press because it's better if you're in, a, in an adversarial conflict with the press where the press loses all legitimacy because then you can do as you please. And that's what he was working towards. And he pulled a lot of people into that kind of argument. And it was very hard not to get into that. But that's what you've described, I think, where a lot of people seemed like they were taking an adversarial position based on something other than the strict dictates of their job. I, I'm keen that we not talk about Trump too much, but he will crop up once or twice in the course of our conversation, particularly when we turn to these broader questions of the presidency, but perhaps just to stay in the moment at the, mo at the moment. And one of the things, obviously, that would be of great interest to our listeners on this podcast in particular is that we now have an American president who I think we can safely say, and we can set aside JFK for a moment here, is the most overtly, proudly self-proclaimed Irish-American president in the history of the presidency. I wonder what you make of that, and I wonder what it actually means. Well, for those of us with Irish heritage, uh, of, of course he's proud of it, um, and, and rightly so. But I think, um, kidding aside, you know, as you, as you know so well, it wasn't always a picnic in America to be Irish. And so 
for people like my mother, who is is my direct line to my Irish heritage, when uh, an Irish Catholic became not just president, but kind of the superstar of a new kind of American politics and a new kind of public American life. I mean, John Kennedy wasn't just a president. Um, he was a movie star in that role. And he was the first one, really, um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt um, at the turn of the century was a kind of movie star, but but we didn't have television in the way we did in 1960. And so Kennedy wasn't just an Irish uh, American president. He was an Irish American Hollywood star who was in the presidency. And everything that's wrapped up into the glamour of Kennedy got, a, you know, became associated with being Irish. So I think there are still strong feelings um, you know, Senator Biden goes to our church, Holy Trinity, where Senator Kennedy also attended. And, and he doesn't do that just by mistake. You know, um, he went there as a senator, but but he's he's playing on those notes. But I think also um, he is at his core, um, you know, all that I associate with um, my Irish friends and my mother that she associated with being Irish, which is having a good heart and a good soul. And even people who are on the opposite side of Biden's uh, politics um, testify to his sense of empathy um, and his sense of humanity, which uh, has been forged through great personal tribulation and sadness. Um, and so it's both the he 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 accesses both the joy and the sorrow that a lot of people associate with the Irish. So he touches a lot of those elements of the way we think of being an Irish American. And then finally, the working class Irish American, um, which has a, a great tradition. Uh, he wants to grab a piece of that, too. So, you know, a lot of it's politics, but a lot of it's also very true to who he is. And in terms of obviously the old, you know, the Irish city machine politics and those kinds of things is, is, is not really what it used to be. There are only residual traces left. But there's obviously still a value to, to, to Biden. I mean, I, absolutely, I take, take him on, on his own terms on face value. But there's a political value to being honest Irish Joe from, from Scranton. Um, and that's against the backdrop, would I be right in saying, of a white working class which is not as loyal, far from as loyal to the Democrat Party as it was 40 or 50 years ago. So part of his success in winning the election, obviously, was winning back some of those white blue collar votes. That's precisely right. Either winning them back or not inflaming them so much that they voted for the other guy. Yes, the coalition of the Democratic Party is no longer founded around the working class uh, that the Irish would have been a part of, you know, during uh, say the uh, the uh, the middle of the last century, but it is a symbol and means a whole lot of things. Which means, as you say, he's a uh, you know regular old Joe from from Scranton. And there would you in that respect, there you could imagine a similar thing from from an Italian heritage uh, in in American history, where the ethnic voters were a part of the Democratic bloc, and that's the story he's trying to plug into. Whereas the modern Democratic Party is a much more uh, diverse, multicultural, and multicolored party than than it was certainly in the middle of the last century. We are barely into this presidency. We haven't even got past the first hundred days yet. Uh, I I don't think. But there's already you know analysis going around. There's been generally positive reaction to the huge stimulus bill and some other moves that the the administration has has taken so far. Some people have gone so far as to make a comparison um, between. The transition from JFK to LBJ, that you had a charismatic, um, apparently mold-breaking, glamorous, young politician, 
in the shape of Kennedy or indeed Obama on the one hand, and the gnarled old presumably cynical uh, end of his end of his road kind of a hack who comes in almost by accident and not to any great enthusiasm, um, but does far more in the space of a couple of years than his predecessor ever managed. Do you think there might be any truth in that early though it is, of course? Um, I guess in some in some loose ways. I'll count up the ways in which you do have some of those similarities. I mean, when when Johnson came in, one of the m- most important things he had was the, as he called it, the the um, you know the martyr's cause, which is to say, he had John Kennedy's program, which he turned into a cause through the assassination. So he had the momentum, if you will, of national sorrow behind him as he pushed for a lot of the domestic uh, achievements or domestic programs that Kennedy couldn't get past when he was alive. To the extent that COVID-19 and national sorrow over uh, the 650,000 dead um, creates the condition for that first piece of legislation that Joe Biden passed, he has the same kind of momentum as he comes into the office. Distinct, so for example, from say when Barack Obama came into the office and the momentum was going in the other direction. He had a national economic crisis he had to kind of climb through um, in order to be able to even place his first step forward. So he had a little bit of the wind at his back. He does know Washington far better than than Barack Obama did or certainly Donald Trump. But the problem is, what does that get you? And we'll see. We are at that place now uh, in the in the Biden presidency where we will find out what it gets him to know how Washington works, because a lot of people would argue that Washington doesn't work the way he would know he the, the way he knows from his long history. They they would say that bipartisan cooperation is not possible of the kind that he spent his career trying to put together. And so uh, th- that was not the case with Johnson. Johnson had skills that he could then deploy based on dealing with a Senate that was very much like the one that he had, had ruled as, as majority leader. But then can I ask you, John, what do you think? What do you think his chances are? Because we hear again and again about how messed up on the legislature side American politics is at the moment, the, the inability to legislate, the kind of frozen nature of, of, of Congress. Do you think he can find a way around or through that? I'll talk about some of the ways it's different. Structurally, it is so different. It feels, it seems like it would be an act, it would be a miracle if he were to get around it. Um, and just briefly, without going on to too much length, in 1960, when you took the two major parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, you had half of them where there was an ideological overlapping, which is to say that the most liberal Republican was was overlapping with the Democratic Party. And so they could have been called a Democrat, but they were just happened to be in the Republican Party. So you had 50 percent of the total number of politicians in the Congress who overlapped. So you had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. Um, and, And now you have a situation in which there is no overlapping. So the most liberal Republican is still more conservative than the most conservative Democrat. Now, when you don't have any ideological overlapping, that means that a president can't pick from as many people. He can only basically pick from his party. To get somebody from the other party, you have to pull somebody who is not just got to worry about ideology, not just got to worry about the, the team that they're on, but they're just, they're, they're just not in the same, uh, I meant geography, they're not in the same ideological place as the, as the president. So it's harder to put those deals together. Now, having said that, you know, greatness comes from doing the impossible. Um, so 
he, the, the situation has certainly presented itself for Joe Biden to to achieve greatness in the sense that he's got a very hard task ahead of him. And what it essentially requires is finding basically 10 Republicans. And why is that so difficult? Well, if you're a Republican in the way American politics works now, you're penalized if you work with the other party. So and the way you're penalized is through the primary system. So if I'm a senator and I'm considering working with a Democratic uh, president, so somebody of the opposite party, I have to worry that in my party's selecting process, the primary, I'm going to face an opponent now because the most uh, passionate members of my party are going to say he sold us out. He didn't he didn't stick with the team. He went and worked with the president of the other party. And we don't want people who do that. We want people who stick to their principles. And so we're going to put up a, a person in our party contest to run against the incumbent. And that happens more and more now. And the most ideological voters of the party are the ones that tend to drive the parties. So if I'm a senator, every decision I make becomes a purity test of my, uh, you know, whether I'm really in the club or not. And if I'm if I don't show sufficient purity, then I'll get bounced out of office by my own team. Um, and that operates far more in the politics in America right now than it really ever has before or in the modern era anyway. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult for Joe Biden to find members of the other party who'd be willing to work with him. And is it not the case that what makes it even harder are two other factors? One is a sort of an, an inbuilt advantage for the red states in terms of the numbers of senators that they elect to the, to the, to the Senate, which means that um, the, the, you can get a majority in the Senate with well under a majority of the popular vote. Um, and the other party is the filibuster itself, which is a rather odd mechanism, which means you need to get to 60 out of the 100 votes in order to get anything done. For, so that's exactly right. So for your, your listeners, the, you have senators that are that, uh, you know, gain membership in the Senate by geography, not by population. And so you have Republicans who represent states with fewer human beings in them. Um, and so uh, you have um, you've had to often have the situation where you might have more Republican senators in the Senate, but representing fewer human beings in America. Um, and so uh, we have a 50-50 Senate now, but the 50 Democrats represent more Americans by, uh, by a pretty good margin than the 50 Republicans do. So, so that's one of the problems of, of um, the imbalance. And then, as you quite rightly point out, the, the filibuster has come to basically mean that unless uh, only in the cases of, of non-controversial legislation does anything pass through the Senate. If it is controversial, it's going to have to pass not with a simple majority, but pass with 60 votes because of the filibuster, which essentially is an automatic. It used to require endless actual debate. Now they don't even do that anymore. Just requires 60 votes. So if you're Joe Biden, that means you need to find 10 Republicans to vote with your 50 Democrats, assuming your party's all going to stick together. Um, and finding 10 Republicans is, uh, I mean, you can find one or two. You know, there's basically one moderate Republican left, Susan Collins of of um, of Maine. Uh, so that's one. And then once you go down through, try and find the other nine, um, they just don't, they don't overlap ideologically with the Democratic Party really on anything. So this is one of the many reasons why your last book is called The Hardest Job in the World, I suppose. Yes, because it used to be presidents could work with Congress and Congress did a lot of the work itself because it felt uh, it had a real stake in American government. Now Congress does less of the work. They put it on the president. And then the president doesn't have a willing partner with Congress because of the ideological mess that I've uh, been describing. 
and and in the book, the hardest job in the world, you go you go a lot further because you look at the elements of the job itself. And I I wanted to to just touch on a couple of those. I mean, one is there's a lot about it at the start of the book, but it runs right through it. Is what you just might call the technocratic challenge of being the leader, not just of the most powerful country in the world, but to deploy the cliche, the leader of the free world with with weapons of war and economic tools and all kinds of unimaginable things at your disposal, which I don't think any other leader in the history of the planet have ever has, has ever had anything like them. And it's an enormous machine. And just being able to drive that enormous vehicle on a day-to-day basis is just incredibly challenging as you lay out in the book. Yes, as I was thinking about, and where the book came from is I've covered American campaigns for roughly the last 30 years. And in campaigns, we have a big conversation about who should have the job. And then the job that we talk about in campaigns is nothing like the job that the presidents actually have. And so I thought, well, they probably should, that shouldn't be the case because there's no sense in hiring somebody for a job that they're not qualified for. Um, So what is the actual job? And as I started to interview people who'd worked in White Houses and presidents and and really just look at the the to-do list. What are the tasks that a president has to tick off uh, in a day? Um, And there are just more tasks than any one body can handle. And those tasks are not frivolous. As you mentioned, they are um, mostly uh, because in the national, they're mostly concerned with national security because national security is obviously a very weighty topic. Um, it can get, you know, Jack Kennedy used to say domestic policy can get us uh, bounced out of office. Uh, foreign policy can get us killed. Um, so there's the weight of the issues. Um, and then there's the fact that only a president, mostly in the foreign policy realm, is the only one who can make these decisions. So they are all in his lap. Uh, and so the president has a lot of responsibility. But then all the domestic issues, the economic issues you mentioned as well, in the American system since Franklin Roosevelt, more and more, the American people have looked to the president and his administration um, to solve and answer and deal with economic issues. Um, something where a president doesn't have the kind of power that he does on the foreign policy front and nevertheless has all the responsibility. So once you look at the to-do list on any given day, it's quite big and quite long, um, and it creates an enormous management question. Um, and many of the tools for management that the best CEOs of organizations have, presidents aren't allowed to have. I'll give you just one, which is in business now, there's a real fetish for people who use adaptation. There's a great book by Adam Grant called Think Again. And it's the idea that basically you need to constantly be rethinking your way of operating because that's the only way you can keep pace with just the changing nature of things. Presidents aren't allowed to adapt. The minute you change a position you previously held, you're called a flip-flopper. Um, you lose, you know, you, you'll spend two days just explaining why you changed your mind. Well, if, if it's necessary in a big corporation to be nimble and change your mind, obviously you can't be a weather vane who, who has no principles. But if you need the flexibility to change your mind and you're never allowed to, well, that's just one of the ways in which uh, you're, you're constrained as a president with all of these things on your to-do list. Is this largely a problem of scale? Because some of those technocratic problems, the leaders of every country face because societies are more complex, technology is more complex, the state has more jobs to do everywhere. But America is the, you know, the biggest beast in the, in the field. So obviously those, those challenges are bigger. Or is there some flaw, something just not right in the way these things are set up in the United States? I think it's both. I think it's scale is a big problem. 
the issues individually are big and there keep being more of them put on the president's plate. But then I think and I'm not I don't have a good handle on comparative government. And so I'm um, wading into a field that isn't mine here. But, you know, when you have cabinet ministers who have a little bit more autonomy um, and a little more power, um, it, uh, it at least takes some things off the plate. Um, and also, by the way, they get, um, you know, they get a little more of the heat. In the American system where the president is such a um, uh, central figure, it's very dangerous to allow your cabinet ministers to have too much freedom. Because what ultimately happens is if you give them too much freedom and they do something wrong, you pay the political price for it. And this has encouraged presidents to bring all of the operations inside the White House. So even if they have a secretary of state, which is probably the most autonomous secretary of state and secretary of defense, the most autonomous um, cabinet secretaries, many of their orders come from within the White House. And many of their duties are in the National Security Office, which is inside the White House. And that's because the White House is always trying to manage um, issues in such a way that they don't hurt a president politically. So when you hold everything in the White House, or you, you try to, it, it means that you're not using your cabinet ministers in a way that might lessen your uh, number of duties. So that, I think, is a particularity of the American system. Um, and it's very hard to fix. Presidents have tried. They've tried to give more responsibility to their cabinet ministers. Something goes wrong. They get blamed. They bring all the power back into the White House. I mean, and another part of that then, which is kind of implicit in some of the things you're saying there, is the sheer symbolic weight of the presidency. We have a clip here of a um, of a trip you paid to the Oval Office a few years ago, which I just wanted to run to kind of illustrate that. Calling from here and meeting here and having meetings on that contract, I think gives you great additional power, mm -hmm. if you want to know the truth. So what's your... Other people have come in, big people from big companies. They've been to the White House 50 times. In one case, I won't say who, somebody you know very well, the head of a major, major company. I said, have you been to the White House before? Yes, 51 times. I said, oh, good. So you've been to the Oval Office? No, I was never brought to the Oval Office. I said, come on, I'll bring you to the Oval Office. The person came into the Oval Office and started to cry. This is a tough person, by the way came into the Oval Office and started to cry. Now, this is a person with a magnificent office with beautiful glass walls and everything else. You understand. Mm -hmm. You've seen those offices before. But there is something very special about this space. If somebody's going to behave like that in front of you in here, how do you know that people aren't always just telling you what you want to hear? You mean with the tears? Is it, no, just there. You know, they see the power of the White House and the Oval Office, and they think, yes, Mr. President, who tells you no? Oh, I think when it comes to the Oval Office, I think everybody means that. You know, when I have foreign leaders here, no matter what country, no matter how big we had uh, as a Chancellor Merkel, we have, we have them all. They all come here. They still take notice at the Oval Office, right. and they mean it. But that's what I mean. One of the worries about a presidency is that everybody tells you yes. Nobody helps you figure out where your blind spots are. So how do you, how do you find that? How I guess it's one of those things in life you have to be able to figure it out. Maybe I've been figuring that out anyway, long before I got here. Mm -hmm. If anybody hasn't seen that video, it's all, it's all available on the internet and, and I'd highly recommend it. It was a, it was a remarkable encounter. I'm, I'm not going to ask you, tempted though I am, if you ever find out who that, uh, that, that lacrimose chief executive was um, who, who shed tears at the, at the site of the Oval Office. But actually, it does seem to be that one of the things about the, the previous president is that in his own very unique way, he actually succeeded in shedding light on 
truths about the presidency. And he kind of does that there too. This the 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 sheer weight of the the White House, the office, the symbolism, the meaning of it, um it, it seems to become greater and greater and perhaps becomes a terrible weight upon the individual who 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 is in the position. It does. It's funny listening to that. That was the interview from his uh, first 100 days with President Trump. And even there, he's a more, you know, to the extent he's not a he he doesn't have a lot of abstract thoughts. Uh, It's just not his way. You know, he's much more a kind of get it done, go forward, not, you know, he doesn't uh, reflect on things in that way. And, And that was the extent he's he was sort of mildly reflective in some parts of that exchange you just played. There was obviously other parts of our interview which would not fit that description. Um, but at least he recognized the, the power of the Oval Office. What I was trying to get at is um, two things. One, George Bush says that uh, the Oval Office is, is uh, shaped that way um, because there aren't any corners to hide in. Well, um, and which is to say about the job, you can't you can't hide. You're the president. The decision comes to you um, and you have to make the decision. Um, that's what the original version of that term from from um, from uh, President Truman was, you know, the buck stops here, meaning that uh, it's always up to the president. He has to make the call on the psychological weight of the of the office, which I was also trying to get at in that in that interview when I asked him about his decision to bomb Syria. Um, uh, you know, there is nothing more um peculiar than what a presidential brain has to go through. Um, President Obama, whose, um, whose memoir came out after my book was published, writes about this a lot. And, and basically the idea that you have to present one public face and then you have to have a private individual self that is vastly different and that knows all kinds of things you can't say out loud and that um, has to, you know, you, you have to put a public face forward that is um, quite different than, than what you're feeling internally. Imagine having to do that all the time for four or eight years. Um, it takes quite a toll. And by the way, to be surrounded by sycophants, which is not, um, I mean, that's of course a p- pejorative word, but... I mean, people miss people behave the way President Trump described in the Oval Office. They are they I don't know that they break down into tears. But, um, you know, George W. Bush used to tell a story of watching people come talk to his father and he would meet them outside of the Oval Office and they would say, you know, I'm going to go in there and tell the president this and tell him that and 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 put him straight on this thing. And they walk in the Oval Office and then they would say, oh, Mr. President, you're looking fit today. That's a marvelous tie. How's your tennis game? You know, they, they just completely lose their sense of themselves. Um, well, when you have that around you all day long, you really lose connection with reality. Um, and and so all of those things kind of warp the presidential brain in a way that is, um, well, we, do, we just don't, nobody, nobody knows how to plan for this. And it's not like there's a presidential psychiatrist who can help a president go, go through this very weird and distorting process. So it's the weight of the job, and then it's just the sheer weirdness of the job. Um, and I'm, I'm frankly not sure how anybody gets through it intact. And, and yet, <laughs> um, I, I, I do wonder, I mean, listening to that, we had, we had James Comey on the podcast 
when he was um, promoting his book over here. And um, as, as I'm sure you know well, he's not shy of comparing his encounters with Donald Trump to some of his encounters with members of the Cosa Nostra in, in New York right. in, the, in, the, in the 1980s and the 1990s. And uh, I, I, I recall a striking scene from The Sopranos when Tony is surrounded by his henchmen who are all guffawing at his very bad joke and he suddenly has this horrible moment of self-realisation. And one of the things about Donald Trump is, even going by that interview there, that never happened to him. No, and that's what I was trying to get at was, um, you know, all presidents, chiefs of staff, they all know about this blind spot problem. I mean, President Obama basically said to to Joe Biden, particularly with respect to negotiating how many people would go fight in Afghanistan, he basically said, I need you to be the skeptic. I need you to be the person always saying we should withdraw immediately. And now that President Biden is president, he um, he's going to do that. But and the reason he knew that is because he knew that the military would be pulling on him and that his you know, desire to uh, be patriotic, his desire to listen to the military would, would warp his own thinking. So he needed to plant someone there who was going to be the no man in a way. Um, and Frank Capra, the movie maker, had somebody on his staff who did this. This is something that people in organizations know to do. And that's what I was, ex- that's what I was searching for with President Trump. Um, and he didn't, uh, I mean, this is very, very much like Donald Trump. He didn't, he was essentially saying, I, I already know how to do all that. I don't need somebody around to tell me. And of course, that wasn't the case with his presidency. And he, um, he had two weaknesses in that regard. One, um, he had no one around him who could really tell him no. And anyone who tried to, he, he didn't listen. Um, or he often didn't listen. Um, and that caused him uh, quite a bit of trouble, obviously. Is it the case that possibly the the symbolic part of the presidency, perhaps due, due to changes in media since since the Second World War, really the gradual, you know, first television, then cable TV, then the internet in all its forms, um, that have led to a situation where the symbolic part has overwhelmed the practical or or technocratic part? You write in the book about how. Um, up to a certain point, presidents weren't required to wring their hands and rush off to sites of natural disasters and pay visits and that. They just stayed in the White House and, you know, if you were lucky, you might have got a cable, you know, and, and, and that was about it. But now the idea of the president as designated mourner in chief, as the person who has to be there, has to be somehow the vessel, the receptacle of the nation's emotions, seems to have almost taken over from, the, from it being an actual job. Well, that's that's certainly the case. And, and so, you know, when I was doing my research in 1956, it was a year of terrible hurricanes on the East Coast of America. And what you don't find in any of the newspaper accounts of all those hurricanes is any conversation about what the president was doing, either before the hurricanes were hitting, he wasn't getting briefings about the path of the storm. And after they hit, there weren't pictures of him, you know, walking through the rubble. Now that's uh, both of those things are... are uh, thorough part of the presidency and the responsibilities of the job. And that's one of the most uh, visible parts of the expansion of the presidency. But there are all kinds of ceremonial duties that a president is now uh, required to participate in. It's, again, part of that psychological warping. You can be in a, a, a meeting in the securest part of the White House deciding on which terrorists are going to be hit by a drone strike. And then 10 minutes later, you can be in the East Room welcoming uh, the NCAA college women's volleyball team and congratulating them on their successful victory. And that's, a, you know, your day is full of that all day long. 
Um, and so uh, it, that's one of the, the definite ways in which um, in which the, the job is changed. And then there are these other ways in which you are the punching bag of a constant stream of media um, and you can't do anything about it. You know, there's just, uh, as, as Lyndon Johnson said about the presidency, sometimes it's like being a jackass in a hailstorm. Sometimes you just have to sit there and take it. Um, and, and, and in a world of constant media, there's also a lot of your job that means basically just sitting there and taking it. And isn't there perhaps a point then at which you become a creature of the media rather than a creature of politics? I mean, without going back to Trump, that's obviously a, a very immediate recent example. But broadly, you look across politics in lots of countries, but particularly at the United States, if you take a figure He's currently in, in, in trouble, um, Matt Gates, the congressman. I mean, I've seen him described, I think, with some justification as an internet troll who happened to get elected to Congress. And he certainly seems to be somebody who's more interested in getting a gig with Fox News than with passing any legislation in the House of Representatives. I think that's, that's exactly right. And that's the result of, I think, at least two forces. And, the, and with respect, this is true of the presidency, too. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that the selection process for picking a president or picking a member of Congress has been increasingly dependent on how you appear in television, uh, on the Internet, and that it's an appearance. Basically, it's a show. Um, and the better you perform in the show the more likely you are to get elected. So that has nothing to do with whether you can handle the job that you're being given. It just means, can you play the role of somebody who's applying for the job? And it turns out we have a very distorted version in our campaigns of what the job actually is. So that's where we have a big disconnect. What we end up doing is we end up hiring people who can pretend to act for a job that is nothing like the job that they're going to have. And to the extent that we get competent people in the presidency every now and again, it's kind of a miracle in a lot of ways. Um, and Donald Trump exacerbated all of those, those things, I mean, uh, in his campaign, in his behavior. Um, but on the Matt Gates point, it's another important second element of the way we select people for the presidency and other offices in America. And that is that much of what thrills those most ardent followers of the political parties is not always what you're for, but what you're against. So in the political scientists call it negative partisanship. So what happened with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is that most people who voted in that election were not voting for Hillary Clinton or against Donald Trump. Uh, sorry, they were not voting for Hillary Clinton or for Donald Trump. They were voting against Hillary Clinton or against Donald Trump. So I'm a Democrat. I'm voting against the Republican, not because I'm so thrilled with my with the member of my team. Um, and that's what Matt Gates was able to do in terms of being an Internet troll. People don't uh, elevate you because of your own intrinsic qualities. They elevate you because you have most successfully lamp lampooned, ridiculed and otherwise driven crazy the people in the other party. Uh, and so it really shows how we've driven very, very far away from uh, elevating or rewarding the qualities that are actually the ones you need when you get into office and have to start making decisions. And by some metrics, the sort of the, the modern internet metrics of engagement, uh, this is a very successful policy. I mean, one of the things that people forget about the, the most recent election is that it was a triumph of democracy in the sense that a huge number of people voted, far more than had voted in the, the, in the previous few elections. So it created probably through that negative process you're describing, an enthusiasm to go to the polls, often by many people who'd never bothered to do it previously. 
And not all of them were voting against Donald Trump. A lot of them were voting for Joe Biden. Um, and not, not all of the people who voted for Donald Trump were voting against Joe Biden. They really like things about Donald Trump. So the, the forces I describe are, are roiling and, and operative, but, but they, don't, they don't describe the entire picture. Now, having said that, the expectations created by that much voting will be interesting to see whether people feel, um, you know, like what they voted for with Joe Biden was, um, was what they received. Um, and how much anger there still is in the, on the losing side, on the Republican side. Because when you have that many people get invested, that's wonderful, unless the investment um, only compounds the negative aspects of American politics that have been dragging down the system. And, and in, in Whistlestop, in many of the episodes of Whistlestop, for me, uh, you, you shed light on episodes and parts of American history which are colourful, to say the least, uh, are often extremely fraught, are sometimes violent, uh, sometimes threaten the integrity of the of the nation itself. And obviously that happened in, in a war at least once. Uh, I, I, it, it's sort of, it's the smaller ones that I love, the ones I knew nothing about. I, I, I recommend to everybody the episode which talks about the, the value of hard cider in the 1840 presidential election. Um, very, it was very illuminating. But with all of that, and enjo- while enjoying all of that, One of the things it brings home to me is that the obvious fact that America is the oldest democracy in the world. But a corollary of that is that it has the oldest democratic institutions in the world, which in many ways have stood it extremely well over the centuries. But on the other hand, it might possibly be the case that those institutions, some of them are just not fit for purpose, uh, brilliant as they were in the 18th century for the 21st. I think think that is one of the central questions right now in American democracy. And the problem is that we are asking those questions of our institutions at a time where we're in an epistemological crisis, essentially, where the ability to debate facts and have a reasoned conversation is up for grabs. And so it adds to the maximum feeling of peril. But but you had mentioned earlier, you were talking about the filibuster. I mean, this is the filibuster is based on the idea that the institution of the Senate no longer operates the way it should. The debate over the Supreme Court and whether the number of, of judges that sit on it should be changed or the Supreme Court's jurisdictional uh, power should be changed is all based on the idea that the Supreme Court and its existing conservative majority is a result of the imbalance you and I were talking about earlier. The fact that senators from geographically uh, from states where they have a geographic advantage on the conservative side and a presidency where, you know, six of the last uh, sorry, seven of the last presidential elections. Um, the Democrats have won the popular vote. But that doesn't mean that only Democrats have been elected. You've had two Republican presidents who've won without winning the popular vote. So if you have a Supreme Court that is chosen by presidents who didn't win the popular vote, whose selection for the Supreme Court is ratified by senators who represent a minority in the country, you then have the possibility that the Supreme Court is a basically minority rule uh, institution. That's that's one of the questions up for debate. Now, that may not be the case, and, and America may decide that that's foolish thinking. But even the ability to think that through is uh, on the table, and our capacity to think it through in these partisan times um, is really in danger. So um, though there is a creakiness to American institutions, and I would include the press in that. We've done a lot in the press to lower our reputation, and it's harder to get through to people because their attention is so shredded. So many of the institutions in America are under are under testing and 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 
and this will be a very exciting um, and hopefully a time that we will be able to resolve some of these issues. But it's there's a moment of peril here. And 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 finally, John, given your long view of history, you you do strike me as an optimistic person. Listening to you, are you optimistic that the country will be able to get through those problems? Well, I, uh, I guess what Chesterton said that hope uh, is having faith in times. Uh, where there doesn't seem to be any reason to have faith or hope, uh, or he said it more elegantly than that. But you know, in times of peril, is is still being uh, still having faith. I am I am hopeful, um, and I must say I I took hope from the forces that held against assault at the end of the last election, as as touchy as things got. Um, basically, the the forces held. Um, there was a transfer and there was a new president um, and and we didn't have violence at the polling places. We had it later, um, but we didn't have the violence that some people thought we might have. Um, and I think the story of the American vaccine uh, production is um, is a hopeful one. And if and, and those of us who've been vaccinated in the States, um, you know, when you go to these massive places that have been set up relatively quickly and everybody waits in line and does the right thing. Um, you know, that has been hopeful. Watching the people, most of them who 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 uh, did all the things that were required during the pandemic, that is a hopeful thing to see. There were plenty who didn't, but many, many, many did the right thing. So those are places where I find hope. Um, I do not know how to find hope in, in the structures of our government right now. Um, but I believe that there are despite the behavior of the Matt Gateses and some of the others who are more, uh, who, who are good at getting themselves noticed, but not good at getting any, making any progress, there are still lots of people who are in it for the right reasons. So I guess I, at the end of all of that, I am, I am still hopeful, um, though I recognize, and I recognize it's not, or I hope it's not a kind of silly, happy hope. Um, I think it's pretty durably tested. So, um, I guess at the end, this is a very long way of saying, yes, uh, I'm still hopeful. Well, thank God for that. Uh, John Dickerson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Hugh. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. And uh, do come back again soon. But uh, remember that you can mail us with your questions and your thoughts at politicspodcasts at irishtimes.com. Until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 